Please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Um, and this Advent season, we've been looking together at the songs of Advent that come from Luke's gospel. And as we've been studying this, I wonder if you've noticed this pattern that we've been going through. There's, Luke has been presenting us with narrative and then song, narrative and then song. And this happens four times. And you start to wonder as you're reading it, are, are we reading a gospel or are we reading a musical? Everyone is bursting into song. What's happening? Well, these characters like Mary and Zechariah are hearing the good news of what God is about to do in saving sinful humanity. And once they process that, you see them fly off into joyful song and high poetry. So what's happening in slow motion as their hearts process this good news? Well, number one, they realize that it really is good news, leading them to wonder. And secondly, they realize that it is really good news for them personally, leading them to praise. So it, it's, it's like what happens in that TV show, Extreme Home Makeover. I don't know if you've ever seen that. This is a show where they usually take a family that's in need, and they do a major renovation in their house. And at the end, they have this big reveal. There's like a, a bus that's in between the family and the finished house, and there's this dramatic moment of everybody's chanting, move that bus. And the bus moves, and the family sees the house, and they're overwhelmed with joy. They, they melt with tears. They sing and dance. So you have to ask the question again, what's happening in their hearts? They're seeing two things. They're seeing that, wow, this house is awesome, number one. But number two, this house is mine. Like this good thing is for me. And so that's what sends them into song. And that's what sends all these characters that we're encountering into song in Luke's gospel. Luke sounds like a musical up to this point because he's... He's not only wanting to show us the facts of the gospel, but he's wanting to show us the eruptions of joy that, that come with it when we understand the good news and what that gospel means. And so that's, that's his plan for you as, as we open this text together, that you'd not only understand the gospel, but you'd enter into its joy. So let's read our passage together, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in, the, in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds, had told, what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying God, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray now as we consider God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would do what you send it, what, to accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. We pray that as we see the unfolding beauty that's in your word, your great work of salvation, that it would send forth light into our darkness, uh, that we might not only see our great need, but see uh, our great Savior to whom we belong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, when Napoleon II was born, you know, he was the firstborn son of Napoleon. The whole French empire in that day was made aware of it by 100 cannon shots. Um, So, great way to make an entrance. Um, And that followed up with a whole week of of a national celebration, a national holiday. So, even if politically speaking, you weren't excited about there being another little Napoleon in the world, at least you got a week-long celebration out of it. Um, so that's the kind of reaction we would expect from the, at, at the birth of a future king. Yet when Christ, the king of glory, God the Son is born, the whole world misses it. The earth is silent. Yet strangely, the, the heavens themselves are erupting in praise. The greatest act of God's salvation up to this point in history had just happened, and everyone missed it. I think this is the perfect illustration for what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with you and me. Why is humanity so unhappy? Why are we such strangers to the joys of heaven? Why don't our hearts sing glory to God in the highest with the angels? The reason we're so unhappy is because back in Genesis 3, humanity made the switch from being centered on God's glory, which always leads to our perfect joy and satisfaction. We made the switch from that to to doubting God's goodness and centering our lives around our glory. So the reason we're so unhappy, the reason we miss and don't see the glory of God and we're strangers to the joys of heaven is because we're so busy seeking our own glory. St. Augustine once said that God is like a good father who wants to fill our hands with blessings, yet the problem is that our hands are often full, clinging to other things we think are going to bring us life. We're so busy chasing after our own glory that we miss the joy that comes from just gazing at God's glory. And the more I cling to my glory, the more I'm a stranger to true joy. And so I don't join the the angels in highest praise to God because deep down, I want the angels and everyone else to sing praises to me. That's that's the grossness of self-centeredness, but that's the default mode of all of our hearts because of sin. And so we'll all miss the healing joy-producing glory of God unless God in his mercy lights up our night, lights up our darkness just like he did the shepherds. So in our passage, we get to see that that's just what God is like. He moves towards sinners. He overcomes every obstacle in Jesus to reconnect us to himself. 
And so our main point that I want us to, to dwell on this morning is, is this. When you see God has joined your misery, you join his joy. When you see God has joined your misery, you join his joy. That is, when you see that God has come for you, when you understand the facts of the incarnation, you can't help but to join in with the joy of heaven. And so as we walk through this passage together, we'll pay attention to, to four things. This first, we'll look at the singers, then the shepherds, then the song, and then the sign. So first, the singers. Who are the singers? Uh, our text calls them angels. So who or what are angels? Um, our, our text from the call to worship this morning referred to, to angels as ministers and, and servants who do God's will. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 calls them ministering spirits. In other places, they're called holy. So that means they're, they're unfallen. They're, they're not tainted with sin. And in our passage, um, their arrival causes great fear among the shepherds, but they, they quickly calm that down. They quickly explain, we're here for your good. We're here for your joy. We're here to point you to the Savior and invite you back into the heavenly praise. So just a few takeaways from when we consider the angels this morning. First, they teach us the secret of joy, I think. And that is the secret of joy is self-forgetfulness. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. It's being centered on God's glory. And as fallen humans, our first thoughts are always selfish, prone to jealousy. But theirs because they're unfallen, it's, their first thoughts are always pure, always focused on God's beauty, so much so that they forget themselves altogether. And now, if, if the angels had any selfishness in them at all, they probably wouldn't be singing with joy about God's salvation of fallen humans. They'd be like, what does this have to do with angels? God didn't take on an angelic body to come save fallen angels. Like, why should we sing about God's salvation to them? But see how pure they are. They delight so much in God that when they see God beaming with joy in salvation, they can't help but to wonder and praise and send praise back to him. They forget about themselves altogether. Another takeaway that flows, flows from the fact that they are higher beings than us. They know God by sight. They minister in his presence. And so follow this logic. If they, being higher and greater than we, find all their joy, all their satisfaction in orienting their hearts to the glory of God, how much more should we follow their example and find all our joy in the gospel? So weird analogy here, so bear with me. But imagine you're in Jurassic Park, okay, and you're being chased by a T-Rex. We know that T-Rexes are bigger and stronger than us by nature. But imagine all of a sudden this T-Rex stops in his tracks, trembles with fear, and turns and runs away. It would make sense that you too, being of a weaker nature, should also follow suit. Like, whatever scared this giant T-Rex should also scare us. All that to say, if angels are finding joy in the fact that God took on flesh and joined human misery, 
How much more should that be our source of joy and wonder? So we should labor to see what they see in the incarnation. That leads us to our second consideration when we look at the shepherds. So the whole world was in the dark about God's salvation that night. So God got to choose who he was going to reveal his salvation to. And he had a lot of options on the table. He could have chosen kings and queens around the world. He could have chosen the high and mighty. He could have chosen that day's greatest philosophers. He could have chosen the the greatest philanthropist of that day. But instead, he chose shepherds, which is the most ordinary choice that could have possibly been made. They were everyday, ordinary people. And it wasn't because they were more righteous or because they were more expectant of the Messiah than other people that God showed up to them. They were just as clueless about the birth of the Messiah as the rest of the world. But in God's great mercy, out of the great riches of his love, he chose to light up their night and reveal his son to them and let them in on his joy. And they are just like every other recipient of of God's grace in that it had nothing to do with the recipient, but it had everything to do with the goodness of the giver. And so I hope you see something encouraging about that fact this morning, that God revealed himself to shepherds of all people. In so doing, God is communicating that his salvation, his love, his gospel, his joy is for ordinaries. So I want to invent a little um, guarantee sticker that can go on you know, maybe tech devices or things like that that has the sticker grandparent proof. Like if you're leaving your house, if you're leaving them at your house with the kids and you say, you know, here's the remote, here's the kid's sound machine, like is the device intuitive enough? Is it user-friendly enough that grandparents can, can pick it up and use it? And if so, then that's a great, that's a great product. It gets the, the guarantee sticker. Um, well, I wonder if in choosing the shepherds, God was putting the equivalent of a grandparent's, grandparent-proof sticker on his gospel. Basically saying, it's, it's for anybody. The, sh- the shepherds received it, and so too, even little children can receive it. Even the homeless can receive it. Even tribes in the jungle can receive it. Because the gospel is for anybody. It's for ordinaries. So let me ask you, are you an ordinary? Yeah, this is refreshing because so much of the world is about trying to distinguish yourself from the next person and improving your worth, proving your unique contribution. And that's how you get ahead in this world. But that's not how God's love works. His love, his salvation is for ordinaries. That's who he wanted to share his joy with. And this wonderful news, if you see and know it, it's, it's, it's great if, if you recognize yourself as, as an ordinary, a recipient of that, of that salvation. The gospel is for you. So regardless of your status in the world, Jesus was born as the angels so tenderly put it to the shepherds, for you. So do you ever count yourself out of the gospel? Do you ever count others out of the gospel? 
If there was ever a group of people who thought that they'd be excluded from God's joy, it would have been the shepherds. They would have said, who are we? We're just ordinary folk. We're not special. We didn't get picked by the world for higher things. Why would God choose to reveal his salvation to us? But that's exactly who God picks because he wants all the world to know, I came for such as these. Next, let's consider the song that the angels sing in verse 14. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we'll divide that up into into two lines. The first line being glory to God in the highest and and the next line being all the rest. Um, So glory to God in the highest, line number one. What's this mean? This is actually not a new song. It's it's the age-old song of God's creation giving glory, giving honor, giving praise back to him. In Job chapter 38, we learn that God mentions that when he was making the world, there were spectators, there there were angels watching. And as they watched God's creation unfold, they were singing with shouts of joy back to him. That is, they saw God's glory unfolding in his work of creation, and they broke out in praise. But now, in the incarnation, they see God's glory unfolding in his work of new creation, his work of salvation, and they break out into even greater praise. And so this age-old song, this age-old praise is cranked up to 11 as they're watching this, this love in, in new depths unfold before them. So here's what I mean. I recently was reading a, a parenting book, um, and I learned that the way that you teach kids is not through abstract ideas. Um, shocker. Um, but they learn through concrete things. So kids don't learn to count to three by lecturing on the nature of threeness. Uh, how does Sesame Street do it? They do one cookie, two cookies, three cookies. Um, and so you talk about three cookies, make it concrete, and voila, they grasp it. So in the same way, the angels knew God's glory, you could say in the abstract, that he was, he was loving. But in the gospel, in the incarnation, everything went from abstract to concrete. As the hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. In Jesus Christ, the love of God is made concrete. Here is God come for you, God joining the human experience in order to redeem you. And the angels see this like they've never seen it before, and they burst into new heights of praise. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the angels long to look into the gospel because it's in the gospel that they see on full display the glory of God. So now let's consider, that was the first line. Let's consider the second line that they sing. They say, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Now this line is is not an age-old lyric, but it's a new one. Peace on earth hasn't been around since Genesis chapter 3, but now at the dawn of new creation, at the Messiah's birth, they can rightly declare peace on earth. Why? Because that's his mission. And it's God who's undertaking that mission 
And so we can consider it as good as done. The Prince of Peace has arrived. Who can stop him? And so as Ephesians 2 says, he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. Colossians chapter 1 says, Jesus reconciles all things to himself by making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus has come to restore the peace that we lost. And he's come to do it within himself. He himself is our peace. But who is this peace for? Um, The next phrase after peace on earth, um, our, our modern English texts say, among those with whom he is pleased. Now, if you go back to the original Greek, it reads something more wooden and saying, peace on earth to men of his good pleasure. So commentators agree that this phrase is shorthand for God's elect. That is, those who actually benefit from the ministry of Christ and the peace that he gives are those whom he was pleased to show mercy to from eternity past. Or try to put it more simply, those who enjoy the peace of Christ owe it all to God's good pleasure and none to themselves. Now, before you say, of course you're talking about this again, you're Presbyterian. Um, Let me point out, this is the angels that bring up this point. Um, And they're trying to be good, careful theologians here when they sing. And it says, Charles Spurgeon said about this passage, these angels are not Arminians. They're, They're not giving any glory to man here. All glory goes to God in salvation, which means if you're a Christian, if you're someone who has put your faith in in Jesus Christ, it's not because you're a goodie and others are baddies. It's because God had mercy on you according to his good pleasure and revealed himself to you. So yes, all are called to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ, but only the Spirit of God, only the Spirit of Christ can bring dead hearts to life and so make them responsive to the free offer of the gospel. Now, I'm sure in saying all that, I've stepped on an ant bed and you have thousands of questions running around, but let me just take one common objection to that. And it's this, wouldn't believing this, wouldn't believing what you just said, turn you into the frozen chosen? Meaning, if you believe it's all up to God, to save people, why evangelize? Why tell people about Jesus? Why do missions? Well, that's not how the angels saw it. They loved this doctrine, and they were the most joyful evangelists. So if we understand this doctrine rightly, it should always lead us to joyful gospel ministry that points other people to Jesus. Think about it this way. Imagine if you've been hired to raise funds by the university and someone from the future comes back in time and hands you a list of 500 names and says, look, there are multiple people on this piece of paper that will give a million dollars. You've just got to call them and ask them. So you wouldn't just receive that document and just leave it in a pile on your desk. You'd call every person on that list and ask them to give. Because you know, this goes back to the reality that, that, that God's peace will find a home in those with whom he's well pleased should motivate us 
to boldly share the gospel and invite people into the heavenly joy. That's the song of the angels. They had a front row seat to the incarnation of of the Son of God and they were overwhelmed with joy. But, you may be thinking, how can I really have peace on earth? How can I really enter the the joy of heaven when I'm this self-centered, I'm this self-absorbed, I'm this self-glorifying? And the angels rightly point us where to look. They give us a sign. They know that our weak faith needs a sign. So let's look at that last point in verse 12. The angel says this, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angels are basically saying, You want to enter into this joy? Go and see this sign. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now that wouldn't have been anything out of the ordinary. Uh, That would have been normal. uh, A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. But a baby lying in a manger, that would have been not normal. That would have been humiliating. That, That was a feeding trough for animals. But that's the sign. The newborn Savior is in the lowliest, meekest, most humble of conditions. And it's not at all what you would expect of God most glorious, of the Messiah. But that's how he chooses to enter this world. You want, they're basically saying, you want to see the glory of God? You want to see the perfection of his goodness, his love, his justice, the perfection of his being? Go and see this child. He is the Savior born for you. And now, when the shepherds got there, they must have initially looked at the manger and thought, really? This is my Savior in a cattle stall? Weak and vulnerable? Unable to speak? And if they were to continue to follow this baby's life all the way through, they'd come to the end of his life with an equally puzzling sign. They'd see him naked, weak, vulnerable, on the cross, whipped, pierced. And they would have thought, this is my Savior? But by God's grace, with eyes of faith, we can look at the shocking bookends of Jesus' life and say, glory to God in the highest. This is my Savior. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. So the invitation that the angels gave to the shepherds is the same for us today. It's it's go and see Jesus. You're not called to whip yourself up into happiness or whip yourself up into the the joy of heaven. You're, You're called to go and look at Christ. And so this Christmas season, you may be full of loneliness You may be full of heartache. You may be overwhelmed by the effects of sin and suffering. And the angels don't turn to you and say, oh, just turn that frown upside down. Be happy. They point to Jesus. They say, go see your Savior born for you. See the love of God made concrete. See his infinite love for you that he would voluntarily leave glories untold, riches without number, to enter your misery. Um, A pastor we got to hear a couple years ago at RYM shared this story about a student um, who was in a school cafeteria. And it was a very crowded cafeteria. uh, And he didn't know a lot of people. But he did manage to sit next to one of his friends. It was a good friend. And uh, as he's sitting there eating his giant bowl of Lucky Charms that was on his tray, somehow the tray flips And the lucky charms go flying, and it ends up all over him. Um, And so it makes a loud noise, and it's that moment where 
everything goes quiet, everyone turns and looks. Um, and it's just a really embarrassing moment. Um, all attention was on him. And so as he begins to stand up and make the walk of shame to the bathroom to clean himself off, covered in lucky charms, his friend, his friend who's got, you know, just kind of the cool guy, stands up and takes his own bowl of cereal and dumps it on himself. And then he puts his hand around this student and they walk to the bathroom together. And now that student would later talk about how transformative that moment was, was for him in his life. Because number one, we all wish we had a friend like that, right? And number two, someone stood up for him and let the embarrassment spill out on himself and said, you're not going to go through this alone. I'm going to walk with you through it. Now, that's, that's amazing. But Jesus does infinitely more for you. In your moment of greatest shame, he stood up for you. He laid aside his glory to become like us that he might save us. Mild he lay his glory by. Why? Born that man no more may die. He had to become a man so that he could take on my sin and your sin on himself and take it to the cross where he could do away with it forever. And he could put his blessing on you. So wherever you are this morning, take the angels up on this and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the friend who stands up for us and lets our shame and, and the wrath that we deserve from God spill over on him. See him in the manger and see that there's no depth that he would not go for you. That kind of love has the power to, tran to transform you, to transform someone who's constantly chasing after glory and a hundred different things to someone who knows and rests and enjoys the peace of Christ. Because you know your worth in Christ. You know how you tell the worth of something? Uh, we've talked about this before. You can tell the, the worth of something by asking the question, what is someone willing to pay for it? So Christian, what, what are you worth? If you're united to Christ, what are you worth? You're worth everything to him. You're worth coming to earth. You're worth taking on flesh. You're worth laying aside your glory, his glory. You're worth being placed in a manger. You're, you're worth going to a, a Roman cross. And if you know your worth, you'll be transformed by that love. And you'll be able to stop the wild goose chase of seeking your own glory. And we'll be able to join the joy of heaven. And you'll even be able to imitate your Savior. You'll be able to lay aside your glory and enter into the misery of others in love. Because that's what love does. It brings you into the joy of heaven and it sends you out to invite others in. Because when you see God has joined your misery, you join his joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of your gospel. When we consider it, how great your love is, we're at first shocked and overwhelmed. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see that this is a gift you were joyful to give, a gift you intended for us. We pray that you would transform us by this love, that you would help us to enter into the misery of others, that we might serve and glorify your name here below. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.